Welcome everyone to this new episode of Sottlecast and with me today is Susan Jamieson who is going to talk about how to become professor on a learning teaching and scholarship tracks so on the back of scholarship and Susan has faced um, a lot of internet issues today to be with us so I'm really grateful that she could make it so welcome Susan if you would like to introduce yourself first that would be nice. Okay, thank you very much, Natalie. Thanks for the invitation to speak. And thanks to all of you who have sent in questions, both to our team site or on Twitter. Um, I'm really flattered that there is the interest there. I would probably like to say at the outset that I'm very happy to tell you what I think I did to achieve professorship. But I would like to qualify that by saying but I, I don't know for sure what it was that appealed to the people who reviewed my application. And I have never sat on a promotion panel at all. So I, I can only guess, I suppose, but I'm happy to share with you what my experience was. And uh, thank you so much for, for offering to share your experience. And most of the questions are actually about that. They are about wanting to hear your experience and others are more technical and I would assume they may vary actually from institution to institution depending yeah. on the promotion criteria. Sure. So <laughs> let's dig in. The first set of quiz question was all around wanting some tips from Susan. So the first one is are there any top tips for actually having time to carry out scholarship? How did you squeeze it in, basically? You know, um, starting with the hardest question of all, um, and I have to confess, um, to be pe perfectly honest, I'm not very good at this. I wasn't very good at it. And the scholarship very often spilled over into what I would call my own time. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that that should be the case. Um, and I think I would like to have been able to work smarter, if you like. So if I could go back and speak to my younger self, I would say, and probably what I would say to colleagues is that you've really got to try and ring fence time. Um, for us at Glasgow, um, we may have a, a formal amount of time for scholarship, or it might be a kind of local understanding, but probably nobody is going to give you that time. And I think you've got to take and make that time. And um, I'm not good at it. I'm getting better finally. Um, but it, the only thing that works for me is to actually put it in my diary and stick to it and say to people, um, no, I'm sorry, I'm not available and whatever. And I know that I'm doing scholarship. It doesn't, I don't have to tell them what I'm doing. It's part of my job. It's legitimate. And I think related to that, um, don't apologize for spending time on scholarship. Um, I think that some colleagues have said to me that they can't or don't prioritise their scholarship. And it is an, an individual choice. But if you're not prioritising it because you feel you've got to put your learners first, at the end of the day, scholarship is about your learners. So if that helps you, then, you know, put yourself in, in that kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So it's about prioritisation and blocking time and being quite vigilant with the time you yeah. put um, there are some other tips I've heard from colleagues, something like micro writing sessions and stuff where you spend 10, 15 minutes, so you're slowly building. Um, the next question was actually community related. So how did you get to know 
other members of the social community in your discipline when we don't have research grants with travel allowance and have very limited budgets for attending conferences where networking is traditionally done within the research community. So how did you, you know, connect with the social community? Yeah, um, I think there are different answers to this. One of them is that I was quite lucky um, in that I think it was 2006, mm -hmm. one of my colleagues, who's the late Dr. Jay McKenzie, um, initiated a project. She developed a university teacher learning community here at Glasgow. And if I remember correctly, there were 15 of us in the community and I applied and was one of the people on it. Mm -hmm. And that was fantastic because um, we, were, we were mostly from the Medical Vet and Life Sciences College, but we were also, there were people from the, the broader university. Mm -hmm. So we met people that we might not have normally worked with. And we all had this bond of, we were on the learning, teaching and scholarship track and nobody knew what it was and nobody <laughs> knew what SOTO was. And yeah. believe it or not, in 2006, we were trying to uh, work out our definition. And I think we probably still are to some extent. Yes. And, I think that um, we, to some extent, form to different extents, different groupings within that 15 over the years have had a bond or a friendship or an actual working collaboration. And, you know, I still see most members of that group round about the university. We also got two publications from it. So that was really nice for us. And the second publication, which was in 2010, the title is something about from anxiety to empowerment. And that was really what it was all about. We were all very anxious about what we were meant to do. And we, we got that sense of empowerment because there were other people like us and we felt more validated. We got to um, get ideas and feedback about our scholarship projects, that kind of thing. So I was very lucky to benefit from that. And I think if there's anything like that that you can tap into, or if you can initiate something like that, then that's, that's really good. I think one of the other things I did was look around for freebies. Um, I think there, uh, shortly after I started at the university, I think that they used to have a policy whereby every member of staff was entitled to a certain amount of money for conference funding. And uh, unluckily they stopped that just about the time I came into the uni mm -hmm. here. And it was very difficult and it still is difficult actually to find money to attend conferences. So I went to a lot of enhancement theme meetings, which are like through the Quality Assurance Agency in Scotland. And especially if they were going to be in Glasgow, um, either Glasgow University where we're based or Glasgow Caledonian or Strathclyde or whatever. And um, things like that obviously don't cost a lot. They feed into your teaching. They're interesting. You get to meet people. I only went to ones that I was actually interested in the, the topic. I, not com complete uh, meeting junkie. Um, the Advanced HE used to be called the Higher Education Academy and they had subject centres which were wonderful and it's a real big loss I think that we don't mm. have those but they were like special interest groups and they ran meetings and the good thing about them was that it was a, a nominal fee um, to attend and I did self-fund it. Um, it. I don't think it should have had to but it was the only way I was going to be able to go and I would usually go to ones that were in Glasgow or London again I could stay with friends so it cut down the cost and sometimes I was able to get travel money back and so I think it's about um well obviously campaigning and hopefully people like myself in my scholarship champion role 
in our institution can help to campaign for funding, but it's also looking for opportunities where you can attend without having to pay a lot. And I think the virtual conferences, one, one benefit from the whole COVID situation has been the number of things that are available to you online. And actually it's quite difficult to keep up with them. So, um, I, but I think um, look for things like that. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. There's been a lot free online events and networking events. The other thing that's also really come into into play over the last years is Twitter and there are different yeah. subtle communities, yeah. <laughs> uh, different subtle communities and learning teaching communities and Twitter as well. So absolutely. And in fact, um, I think that this podcast mm -hmm. arose out of one of the, the Twitter forums, LT. Uh -huh. HE chat um, which uh -huh. is on a Wednesday evening and I, I don't tune in every every week but I have tuned in a few times and it's it's nice it's only an hour and it's um it's fun actually yeah. it's actually fun so yeah that, you're quite right that kind of forum is is really good as well. Mm. So that was the that's where the questions about kind of concrete tips. Um, the next set of questions was looking into actually really practical what is it you actually had to do and to showcase um, your you know during your uh, application for professorship so in the first question for instance ask if you were expected to have a minimum number of masters or phd students uh, i i'm not aware of it i didn't have that um mm -hmm. in in our institution there's an expectation the promotion criteria for other levels, not just professor, that you need to supervise PGR students. And that should be very difficult. It's difficult to get an opportunity to do that. Um, I had one PhD student when I went for a professorship, but I'd also supervised some students doing professional doctorates and, and several master's students. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I don't think that that was a big thing, certainly not for me, but I do think that it's an area where Certainly locally, I think our schools and colleges could help people to find opportunities for PhD supervision. Yeah, that's true. And um, the other question I was um, that was asked is, do you need to be managing stuff? Um, I think um, I, my own view is no. I would qualify this, that this is um, my interpretation of what worked, if you like, in my application um, in my institution in 2017, which is when I went for it. Um, but leadership and management is one of the categories for promotion. And you have to, I can't actually remember, I should have checked before this, but you have to meet most, if not all of them. I think you probably have to meet them all. But um, so you have to do something with leadership and management, but staff management is only one part of management. So I think if your job doesn't lend itself to staff management, you don't necessarily have to worry about that. Um, things like um, budgetary responsibility, decision making, planning, these are all aspects of management. And um, so I think you could you could bring that kind of thing into an application and then leadership, leadership, you can you can potentially show leadership at any level in the organization, if you've got the ideas, the vision, the influence, those kind of things. And influence doesn't have to be 
about your position in the hierarchy and um, because we've got lots of very young new members of staff who are hugely enthusiastic about you know I don't know whether it's a, a MOOC or um, mm. a particular kind of teaching they're doing or that and they can be leaders in their sphere. <coughs> Sorry I think in a, <laughs> I think yeah I think that's my answer mm. to that one. Yeah and um yeah, I think there's a differentiation between management and leadership. And while leadership is quite strongly represented in the application, at least in our institution, I think management is just is not really is considered part of it, but it isn't the predominant factor there, if I remember I think, that right. If I can see, um, my own view is you have to be quite clever with your applications. You have to make it fit what they want. If you can, obviously, you can't make things up, but... At the end of the day, there is a literature on management leadership and the fact that management is a form of leadership. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you can make the argument that management is important. And certainly the criteria we have at Glasgow, um, I think that probably it would be quite common for people on a um, LTS track to have management experience because they quite often would have that certainly at the level of courses or programs and therefore in my view they should make the most of it. Yeah. I think you're making a really strong point there that the application actually is you are making the, the argument for yourself and it's not so much just ticking boxes but actually you're you're engaging in that discussion and you're making an argument about how you you know, fulfill different criteria. That That is so true. And you you don't have a lot of words. So um, for a lot of these, um, I did ha actually have a look at my application uh, <laughs> a couple of days ago, because <laughs> it seemed like a lifetime ago. But for some of these um, sections, you had like 250 words, and you're trying to put a lot of stuff and showcase what, what you think they might want to know about, um, and show how they meet the different criteria and what what have you so you you have to be selective and persuasive at the same time mm -hmm. and this this kind of leads over to the to the next question so the next questions are all about output and esteem and um so what type of knowledge exchange outputs were expected okay um i think one thing to say is that people should not just and I'm sure they wouldn't just accept my word always always go to whatever the current set of criteria is for your context because the goalposts always change and I personally sometimes I'm never quite sure whether to fit something into knowledge, knowledge exchange or, or yeah. what have you so it's important to see what they say and I actually um, I, I literally took the guidance and thought what can I actually respond to there. So knowledge exchange included things like partnership with private or public sector, influencing public policy. And um, I don't know how strongly I scored in this aspect. There was no number of outputs specified. But for example, I spoke about um, methodology workshops that I ran at a national level. Um, and I, I was lucky to be able to, I was invited to do that year after year by somebody who was just glad to have <laughs> me there to deliver it I suppose but it was about making something of that mm -hmm. and saying that I was actually um exchanging knowledge with people mm -hmm. um, who, who wanted to obviously to have that knowledge mm -hmm. um I was a member of a, a team that went to Ethiopia 
to do some training for medical professionals there about curriculum development and yeah. um, so I mean I, I really had to think laterally I suppose about anything that was kind of beyond the university walls yeah. um, invitations to share knowledge about problem-based learning which we yeah. use still in the medical school um, so I because of the role I had at the time which was year one lead and then a deputy head of the medical school um, I was able to host visits from people mm -hmm. from UK medical schools or from mm -hmm. international medical schools yeah. that, that sort of thing mm -hmm. that's um so you you answered <clears throat> uh the question and, and gave us a couple of examples of what could count this knowledge exchange but you also answered the question about the number and the numbers and sort of outputs because it can vary um is there in your experience is there were there different types of outputs that were perceived more um more valuable or more worth and also more worth your time in terms of a promotion than than other outputs were so um so i think well, first of all i find it difficult to answer that question in one sense because i didn't decide I was going for a professorship mm -hmm. I was quite pessimistic about the possibility of ever being able to get a professorship mm -hmm. until the um, the University of Glasgow changed its criteria and and really made it possible for you to go forward in, in that route so I didn't as a rule set out to do things with a view to becoming a, a professor and mm -hmm. um, I generally did things that interested me and were going to feed back into my role as I saw it um so but that said I think that it is scholarship outputs I think are very important so there were the different you had to have the knowledge exchange outputs um, and you had to have measures of esteem but you had to have scholarship outputs and I think that the scholarship um not surprisingly was the thing and the form certainly at that time emphasized that because it asked you specifically for four to six scholarship outputs. Oh, okay. Um, it there was probably a certain time over which they were to um, be taken, but I actually don't remember that. But it, it was in the end, it was more challenging to to choose, you know, which four or six are you going to showcase? Uh -huh. And the thing was that with the scholarship outputs, they asked you to justify those, um, and and that's more difficult. So I chose. Um, I chose, I had a, a joint author article, which I chose because I wanted to show that I collaborated with colleagues in different disciplines. I had a sole author article about a research method in education, mm -hmm. because I wanted to show that people in my, if you like, adopted discipline valued my views. Yeah. Um, I did a, a doctorate in education. And I used that, but it had been indicated to me before that, you know, that was just for my own benefit. <laughs> and, and, you know, I thought, oh, well, it's quite a lot of work for my own benefit. But actually, it fed completely into my work. I now am um, director of a health professions education program, which has been largely based on my scholarship for that. But yeah. what I did was that I, in my application, said I did the thesis, the, the mm -hmm. doctorate, but it then spawned a whole variety of other things. So I cheated, if you like, and used my word count to show uh -huh. a bit more. Um, and then I had different examples of CPD modules that I'd written. Um, and one was about um, 
learning basic science and medical education. Mm. One was about curriculum design and one was, what was the other one about? Can't remember what the other one was about. But <laughs> all of those things um, were really to show different areas that I was claiming yeah. expertise or strength in. Yeah. Does um, that answer? I, I hope so. <laughs> it, it, it does to me. So, so you've given a good reason for, for choices of outputs to showcase in an application like this. Um, you've, um, you've mentioned it briefly and um, uh, in, in your answer there, and that's what was the next question is, what measures of external esteem were, were expected or of relevance? Um, is there anything you would add to, to your scholarly outputs in, or your CPD sessions you ran that relate to esteem indicators? Yeah, I think I really would advise people to look at the application form to see what the institution mm -hmm. at that point in time is yeah. calling a measure of esteem because um, I think that this has changed. Certainly in Glasgow has changed and sometimes you'll find esteem something will fit in your team in one, in one application and not in another. But um, it was things like membership of appropriate learner soci learned societies. So I was a member of ASME, which is the Association for Medical Education. It's a, a UK one. And I was actually also a member of a, a committee on that, um, the education research group for, I think it was eight years. So that was something I was able to put. Um, higher education academy membership. So my SFHE or yeah. the RET membership, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, invited plenaries or talks. So um, I think this is something I was lucky because this came off the back of my doctorate, um, invited to give talks about my doctoral um, research. Reviewing was another thing. Um, so reviewing for education journals and I think that that is something that um, you can get involved with really at an early, quite an early stage in your subtle journey. And it's quite useful because also as well, it, it, you have to have some knowledge to be able to review, but you also learn a lot through the reviewing process. Yeah, and um, also I did a bit of grant application reviewing, mostly for um, the national teaching I can't remember grants, I think they're called. Yeah. They weren't, I wasn't eligible to apply because in Scotland they didn't apply to us, but uh, I did review. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And thank you. And, and I agree, it's always good to check your own, you know, local promotions criteria and see what these esteem indicators are. Because also with social media coming up, academic blogs, Twitter representation, and so all these things can start to feed into that now. It's actually, I, I think you're doing a good job of reminding me to come into the 21st century. <laughs> Sorry. I have, no, no, you're quite right. And I, I have, um, I have not engaged so much with Twitter until the, maybe the last couple of years. Um, and it wouldn't have occurred to me to write a blog, mm -hmm. but actually I think what a great way to get out some of your early ideas. Um, so definitely um, I think that the, the way I did it is not necessarily the way I would do it if I were going to do it yeah. over again, but it was what I knew. Uh -huh. um, and there you have it. So. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, this is our segue to the next set of questions, and it gives Susan a chance to take a sip of tea <laughs> after answering yeah. all, all these questions. So the next questions are focusing very much on 
kind of like general processes. Um, so the first one is, um, and I don't even know how, how you know, if you can answer that is how long did each stage of a learning teaching and scholarship career progression take so basically from lecture i assume that means from lecturer to senior lecturer to reader to professor yeah well i think don't do as i say if you like um i i said before that i did not intend to go for professorship mm -hmm. I really felt for quite a long time that it wasn't going to be an option mm -hmm. and in fact when I, I was appointed in 1993 in the research and teaching mm -hmm. track and probably in common with a lot of other people who mm -hmm. um, end up if you like on the learning and teaching scholarship track mm -hmm. my research didn't it it didn't go in the direction one might have hoped for but also I was more interested in the teaching and any opportunity that came up to be involved with teaching I took it and gradually got more involved but I it was actually a colleague who encouraged me to apply for promotion uh -huh. and that was it was 2005 so 12 years before my I wouldn't be allowed to, <laughs> I wouldn't be allowed to settle for that now um, oh. But there was no, I think at that time, my perception anyway, is that there was nothing in place to facilitate yeah. your development, yeah. especially if you were more interested in teaching. And it, unfortunately, yeah. at the time, um, and I think it still applies to an extent, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, at the time, it was very much seen as a second rate track. So to be promoted onto the learning and teaching mm -hmm. track was not necessarily regarded as a good thing, but I was very happy with it. So I just tried to be philosophical about the fact that I was doing what I wanted yeah. to do. And then I, as I say, thought that that was me stuck in Glasgow. They actually took away the readership option for mm -hmm. people in the learning, teaching, scholarship track, although that has been reinstated. Yeah. But they, they brought in the opportunity to go for professorship mm -hmm. um, with, I think, more level playing field criteria. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, it's not a very positive way, but I just was fed up seeing people being promoted to professorship and thought I'm going to try it and uh -huh. see what happens or what feedback I get. Okay. So. <laughs> okay, so the competitive streak came through and you applied for it. <laughs> in, in the very end, in the end, frustration mm -hmm. and just, I suppose, self-belief. Um, mm -hmm eventually through the interactions I had with people in the different communities that mm -hmm. I did engage with mm -hmm. just enough confidence to think no what I am doing is okay and I'm going to go for it mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm not I mean by this time by the time I went for professorship there was a lot going on at Glasgow so there was a lot of support but I think that the professorship thing was new I was one of the first cohort to to go for it so it was all a little bit kind of mm, what what are they actually really looking for they're telling us yeah. on the form that they're looking for x y and z but is that really it so uh -huh. yeah so um <clears throat> so you were one of the first ones to actually become professor on that on that new on its system so yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. breaking through the class ceiling um in that in that regard i've lost my questions here i'm sorry there's so many um yes the next question in in regard of that you know with that pro to that process was what were the challenges or were there any challenges in first achieving senior lectureship and then professorship 
as a result of being on a learning teaching and scholarship track and I know you covered some of it that at that time the structures were necessarily in place which we now do have but is there anything else you haven't that you you felt was a challenge that you haven't addressed yet <clears throat> um, I suppose I've touched on a lot of the things um, and it, it's to do with things like time and funding and that kind of thing mm -hmm. um the I think that the perception that it wasn't such a valued activity um I think that that is something that I'm very glad to see I do think that that is changing and I'm very glad to see that because I think that um I think one of the other things about the COVID pandemic is it's shown how key teaching is in our institutions <laughs> and that um that we really all are needed and we do bring value to the organization. Um, so I, th I think there's a better, mm -hmm. a better discourse, if you like, yeah. um, now than there was. But actually one of the big challenges was probably getting the self-belief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that, that I think this is something that rings through with, with many people, is that self-belief to actually go for it. Um, and maybe that's another topic for another podcast to actually talk about that, to talk about self. Twitter is very good for that. Twitter is yeah. very good saying, just do it. Yeah, just do it. Exactly. <laughs> so if you don't have self-belief, go on Twitter and let the academic community tell you to just do it. Um, did you feel supported um, and by whom? And what I really like, from colleagues is there is in brackets a little comment saying roles not names are fine here <laughs> i think it's difficult to even say roles because i think it's so easy to identify individuals but i think that on the whole well um on the whole i think one of the th the big things at the university level anyway was the development of the promotion criteria mm -hmm. um that that eventually um i assume that that was Professor Fishbacker-Smith that was mm -hmm. behind that primarily, but, um, mm -hmm. well, whoever, um, Professor Coton as well. But I think that that made a big difference because it meant that there was something that was potentially achievable. Um, I think in the college, our college, probably the support came from individuals. There were some individuals who acted as critical friends. Mm -hmm. I think at the time I was going through, the structure wasn't there. And even my online manager, who was personally very supportive, was very unsure about what the expectations really were. And so I think it's fair to say that he hoped I would get it, but he really didn't know if I would get it because he didn't really know much about this mm -hmm. sort of stuff. So, yeah. um, you know, is that answering the questions? Um, I hope so. <laughs> Again, these came from the community. So, but um, one of the follow-up questions I would have to this is: um, Your critical friends, where they do they? Do you think they have to be already professors, or can can they be from all different kinds of career stages? I think they can be from anywhere. I mean, actually, also, I don't think they have to be academics. It, it depends, obviously, what you're writing. Um, or what you're tweeting or whatever. Um, I think, um, I mean, I, I'm lucky that I've had 
people it's it partly in Glasgow uni but also people outside so I mentioned the ASME organization yeah. that I was part of so I had two or three people there who yeah. would give me feedback on ideas um, but it, it doesn't have to be definitely doesn't have to be professors I think it's important that it's somebody that is a potential reader for whatever it is you want to produce mm -hmm. and that's probably what matters yeah Okay, and on the back of that, do you actually have any role models or mentors who inspired you on your journey? <laughs> um, I don't know if I should name names because I've not yeah. said these individuals, but I can describe the, the sort of individuals. Mm -hmm. Well, there was one person who, it was a person who encouraged me to apply for promotion to senior lecturer, or we called it then senior university teacher and it hadn't even really been on my radar that I would be mm -hmm. suitable promotion material if you like mm -hmm. and that was quite nice to have that vote of confidence so that I suppose that was kind of mentorship and there is a colleague at Glasgow who has over the years for many years now and um, been very supportive giving feedback and um, even just someone to bounce ideas yeah. off um, and she knew a bit about the medical education yeah. literature so she kind of knew what she was talking about but um, and the thing I think that was really good was that she gave time mm. and even when I was relatively junior if you want to look at it like that and um, she was always willing to give time and I think it is quite a big ask of somebody you know somebody who who was very busy I also had people, as I said before, outside, and I, I mentioned that I did a doctorate in education, and uh, I did that at the University of Strathclyde, and I had two supervisors there, and they were great. I mean, they were actually, it was, they were quite tough, and it was quite hard going back to being a student again when you were managing a, a <laughs> curriculum elsewhere, but they certainly functioned eventually more like critical friends than supervisors really that's tough i did my phd in education strathclyde as well oh there you are go things we didn't know about each other <laughs> um okay we are going to the last set of questions okay um the um and the 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 next three questions are kind of relating to your own journey and one I thought was a really interesting question is how did Susan build the scholarship narrative how well accepted was it in her institution and I think we've spoke quite you spoke quite extensively about the second part but how did you build the scholarship narrative so the story of your of your scholarship basically I'm very good at inventing stories after the event I suppose is I would say I did not, I've already said I didn't set out mm -hmm. down a particular path, but um, I, I suppose I think my engagement with Soto mm -hmm. really started with the, I, I think it was when I was engaged in teaching, so that's really where it started, and I ran I was deputy for a long time and then ran year one medicine mm -hmm. and we delivered a problem-based learning course mm -hmm. and I became aware gradually that I didn't understand the evidence base for PBL um, and people would increasingly ask questions about it once it fell a bit out of favour it wasn't the shiny new thing in the block and I wasn't able to answer the questions and when I tried to engage with the education literature 
I couldn't quite make head nor tail of it. And I also found that when I went to some sessions that were run by the forerunner of Leeds, the Learning and Teaching Centre, people would use terminology like pedagogy, which I could hardly say, never mind understand what they were. And it was, mm -hmm. I was probably quite close to being put off and just not yeah. bothering to engage. And then I thought, no, and I started to engage more and more. So I went to more of those kind of events to, mm -hmm. to learn more. I also, around about that time, saw an advert where they were looking for members for the Education Research Group in ASME. So I responded to that mm -hmm. and then got more and more involved in uh, workshops, writing projects, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And then that led to eventually me doing my mm -hmm. um, thesis. And I think that one of the one project has nearly always led to something else. I quite often end up working with the same people again. So mm -hmm. I'm not really sure if that is a narrative. Um, mm -hmm. It's certainly not planned, mm -hmm. but it worked out. Things in a nice way. It's got a happy ending anyway. <laughs> so. That's fab. So you already answered to a large degree how useful your second professional doctorate in education was for your work and you've said how much that impacted your own practice is there anything you want to add to this question or I would like to say that I don't think people do have to or should have to do another doctorate that was me I chose to I am kind of all or nothing I suppose yeah. sort of person and I really enjoyed it but it took an awful long time and it was a lot of hard work and I don't think it's necessary, so I'm not advocating that everybody should do that, but it worked for me and it led to other opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. yeah, I think that's... I better not comment because I'm playing with ideas of, oh, it would be so nice. <laughs> Um, there, there are two more questions. So the, the last question of that set about your own journey is um, what piece of scholarship that Susan is most proud of and why? Okay, well, my thesis would be one thing mm -hmm. um, and that is because it was my idea, my work, everything and, and it actually was achieved at the end. Mm -hmm. But actually, if I can cheat and say two things, um, and, I, and this was a Twitter question, so I actually answered this on Twitter already, and, and mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Susan Smithy, is that Smith? Uh, I can't remember. She, she kind of let me um, have two answers. So one is my EdD thesis, and the other one is a, an article, a commentary I wrote in 2004, mm -hmm. and it was about Likert type rating scales. Oh. And it, it was, it was just, it's not peer reviewed. So in that sense, it doesn't count, but it's actually been one of the most cited papers that medical education has had. That's, um, what, that's probably the premier journal in medical education in the UK. Um, I have to say that I think a lot of people who cite it probably don't read it from what they actually say <laughs> about it. And it was also very contentious. I discovered at one point that there was a website in America where people were really um, laying into the person that wrote this. It, it's all to do with um, mm -hmm. the it, how you regard the numbers in a Likert type scale. And I came to that because I was trying to make sense of what education research texts were telling me compared to what I was seeing in practice in medical education journals. And it was just a commentary about like, more or less, I'm puzzled, you know, <laughs> what do we do? And um, it, I think I am proud of it because it is actually widely cited, but more than anything, because 
I felt very strongly about it and I decided to just put it out there and that was maybe the first time that I had really done that. That's fab. And I am so going to ask you to share that article with us. So I can put the link underneath the, underneath the podcast. It's funny because yesterday we had a conversation with colleagues in Singapore and we were talking about questionnaire design and incidentally, we are talking about uh, Likert skills as well. So um, yeah, <laughs> this is great. And the last question for you. So I would be very interested if you could ask Susan if she thinks things are really changing for learning, teaching and scholarship. At my school, I have seen some encouraging signs, but I wonder if we will ever achieve parity with research focused academics. So, okay, I'm not asking you to look into the crystal ball, but what's your perception about the changes happening at the moment? I do think things are changing. Um, I think it's quite slow and I think if we achieve or when we achieve, I would like to say parity, it might be a while in the future. Um, and I think that we've got some responsibility for that because we have to not be apologetic or not mm -hmm. listen to that discourse about teaching being um, second, if you like. Yeah. Um, but I, there's lots more conversations going on um, about scholarship the organizations that I was talking about earlier, like ASME and AMI, medical education organizations, they're publishing papers or statements or guidance about scholarship. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a growing literature about scholarship. I'm sure you're very well aware, Natalie, but um, there's a literature that people from Glasgow have contributed to. So not just the authors in the learning community that I mentioned at the outset, but Anne Tierney, who was a member of staff here at Glasgow, She's published some nice work mm -hmm. on SOTO. And I think that um, with that and with specific journals and specific education conferences, which there are, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it is definitely on the rise. And I think that there's there are political things in the background as well, like in England and Wales, the teaching excellence framework, and in medicine, the General Medical Council's recognition of trainers initiative which have pushed teaching and if you like student or trainee satisfaction up the agenda that has probably benefited the status of teachers and therefore the status of scholarship but um, I think it probably still has a way to go. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's going in the right direction from... Absolutely I do I agree. So, and we have people like you who already are professors on the back of learning, teaching and scholarship. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure having you to interview and learn that you're a fellow ex-stress Clydean. Yeah. <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> thanks a lot. Bye, Susan. Bye-bye. Thank you.